There's a band called Everclear who put out a song back in 1997 called Father of Mine. Listen to a few of these lyrics from the song. It says, Father of Mine, tell me where have you been? Yeah, I just closed my eyes and the world disappeared. Father of Mine, tell me how do you sleep with the children you abandoned and the wife I saw you beat? I'll never be safe, I'll never be sane, I'll always be weird inside, I'll always be lame, and now that I'm a grown man with a child of my own, I swear I'll never let her know all the pain that I've known. Then there's this line that just repeats throughout the song, and though it's an upbeat song, if you really listen to the line, it leaves you with the chill. It says this, my daddy gave me a name, then he walked away. It's an autobiographical song written and sung by the lead singer about his father who abandoned him as a child. And he's clearly angry, he's clearly upset as he sings this line over and over again. My daddy gave me a name and he walked away. From a young age, we all feel as if our our parents at some level have committed to us, right? They've they've committed to love us. They've committed to invest in us. They have committed to protect us no matter what. But unfortunately, some people, maybe some of you, have experienced the brokenness of that promise. And that leaves pain, doesn't it? It hurts. Every single one of us, at some level, to some degree, or another, we, we have experienced the pain that comes from broken promises. Well, this morning we are going to see that God has made many promises in His Word, and we are going to see that our God is the perfect promise keeper. He keeps His Word. He does not break His promises. God is the ultimate promise keeper. No matter what, He remains committed to His people and committed to His promises. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. Last week, we looked at Paul's first missionary trip to Cyprus. And we talked about the divine appointment that he and Barnabas have at Paphos on the other side of the island with a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus. It's a great story. If you're out last week, you can listen to it on the web. This week, we are going to be focusing in on this same missionary journey, but a different place. We're going to be focusing on Paul and Barnabas's next stop in another place called Antioch. Not where they're from, not where they came from, their home church that send them out, but another Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. It says this, Now Paul and his companion, that's Barnabas, and remember John Mark's with them as well, set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, remember that, we'll, we'll return to that, and returned to Jerusalem. But They went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So we're still looking here at Paul's first missionary journey. And we see that that he and Barnabas and John Mark, they, they leave Cyprus. They venture out further from Paphos to Perga in Pamphylia. And there they lose 
John Mark. And like I said, we're going to return to that in just a minute. Then Paul and Barnabas leave from there and they travel to another Antioch in Pisidia. Let's look at it up here on the map. This will kind of give you a visual here of where they've been. <clears throat> Here's Antioch first. That, yeah, right there, that church that's where they were sent out. That's where the church was planted. They made their way to Cyprus. And then they made their way across Cyprus to Paphos. And then after they minister in Paphos, that's where they have that encounter with Bar-Jesus and Sergius Paulus. They then take off and they go to Perga. And there at Perga, that's where John Mark leaves them. And so then Paul and Barnabas head on from Perga to the other Antioch there, the last spot in Pisidia. All right? And notice the end of verse 14, we're told on the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day of the week, a Saturday, on the Jewish day of rest and worship, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue and they sat down. You see, Paul had a pattern that he followed in mission ministry. You see him do this over and over again. He goes into a town and the first stop that he makes is to the local synagogue if they have one. And the reason why is because Paul was a Jew. He had good training. He was from good stock. He had a great pedigree. And synagogues were places where people like Paul would have an immediate audience and a place where he knew what they believed and he could make a connection pretty quickly to Jesus. That's a good strategy, by the way, isn't it? Folks, God wants us to be strategic like this in ministry as well. Do you know that? He, he wants us to look for people that we have an audience with, with, with people who have beliefs that we understand, and he wants us to take Christ to them, and he wants us to take them and bring them to Jesus. Paul did this. And though he did, and though we do see some fruit from this, Paul also faced fierce opposition when he did this, which teaches us another important thing here. Listen, though it's important to have a good strategy, that does not guarantee a fruitful ministry. We see that with Paul. But we're called to be faithful, right? We're called to be faithful regardless, and Paul and Barnabas were. They would hit up the synagogues and share Christ with them, and though sometimes they would respond, other times they responded with opposition. And so then Paul and whoever was with him, they would make their way to the Gentiles. And though we learn throughout the book of Acts that the Gentiles respond favorably, many of the Gentiles also respond with persecution. This is a pattern we see repeatedly by Paul in ministry. And this is a response that we witness by both Jews and Gentiles all throughout the book of Acts. Well, in this passage, we just have the account of Paul before the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia. Next week, we'll look at him speaking to both Jews and Gentiles. And we're told that they first went to the Jews in the synagogue. They sat down. Notice what happened next. Look at verse 15. We're told after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul, because he was a Jew, because he knew the patterns of worship and the practices of his people, he knew he might be given this opportunity, and he does not squander this opportunity. He jumps at this opportunity. We're told in verse 16, So Paul stood up 
and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, that's the God fears, the Gentile converts to Judaism. He says, you who fear God, listen. And then from verse 17 to verse 41, we have Paul's first recorded sermon for us. And again, his audience is a Jewish audience for the most part. And Paul's message to them is this. God is our faithful and perfect promise keeper. That, that would be the title of his sermon or something like it, if Paul were to put a title on it. He has made promises to his people, and he has kept all of those promises that he's made to his people. That's the main point of Paul's sermon. Now, why is this the main point of his sermon? Well, we don't know for sure, but there were a few things here. There are a few things that are obvious. One is that there were many Jews in this day who did not believe that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. They, they believed that promise had not yet been fulfilled, and many were wondering if it would ever be. Well, Paul is preaching here, and he's telling them that God is true to his word and has fulfilled what he has promised in his son, Jesus. So that's one reason why I believe Paul uses this as a main point in his sermon. Here's another reason why I think Paul might have had this topic in mind in this sermon. Probably because of what took place at the end of verse 13. We learn that John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas hanging at Perga. He bails on them before they go to Antioch and Pisidia. And we learn later that this really bothers Paul. In fact... He and Barnabas end up splitting ways over John Mark. Barnabas chooses to be gracious to John Mark, and Paul really didn't want to be at the time. And so Paul takes Silas with him, and they go elsewhere and do ministry. Now, why was it that John Mark left? Why did he leave? Well, we're not told here why, but there's a number of reasons that have been given. Maybe because he was homesick. Maybe it was because they were traveling by ship and on foot, and it was just too hard for Mark. Might have been he was dealing with culture shock. You know, they were going into all these different areas and seeing these strange customs. That may have just been too much for this young John Mark. I heard one pastor say that it may have been because he and Paul clashed. You kind of get that when you read the text. That he and Paul might have had issues with one another. It, it appears as if when this missionary journey starts, that Barnabas is the one in charge. But somewhere along the way, that leadership shifts from Barnabas to Paul. And maybe John Mark didn't like Paul's leadership style. And that's the reason he left. We don't know for sure, but we do learn that Barnabas and Paul eventually part ways over John Mark. John Mark left them. He bailed on his commitment to them. He made a commitment to be on mission with both Paul and Barnabas, and he did not keep his promise. He did not keep his commitment. And again, we've all had people let us down in this way before, haven't we? Those who have committed to help us with whatever they've committed to help us with, and they bailed on that commitment. They made promises to us, and they've broken those promises. Paul probably had that on his mind when he's preaching this sermon. 
But Paul is going to show the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia that God is always good on his word. God is the perfect promise keeper. And he is going to explain to them what this means and why this is important. First, he makes this point. Point number one. God keeps his promises according to his perfect time. That's the first point Paul makes. Look at verse 17 through 20. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Notice here that Paul begins his first recorded sermon the same way Peter began his, the same way Stephen began his. He's speaking to a Jewish audience and he is reciting their Jewish history. He meets them where they are and he's keeping their interest by retelling their history to them. And the Jews love this. And this is a great principle for us as well. To share Christ effectively, we have to meet people where they are. And then we have to effectively guide them to Jesus. Paul's doing that here. Now, why does he begin here? Why does he start by talking about their time in Egypt and their deliverance and their 40 years in the wilderness and the 450 years it took them to finally possess the land? Why does he start here? Well, remember, we said that Paul's main point in this sermon is that God keeps his promises. He is a promise-keeping God. And so he starts out in this way to let them know, though that's the case... God fulfills his word and he keeps his promises on his timing, not on yours. Sometimes it takes 40 years. Sometimes it takes 450 years. Now, why is this important for the Jewish people to remember? Well, think about how long this promise of redemption has been for them. God made this promise of salvation through his Messiah all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then Abraham was told that the Messiah was going to come through his family line. And through his family, the nations were going to be blessed. David was told that a king was coming to sit on his throne forever. And hundreds of years had passed without a word from God. And so Paul is reminding them of how long their people had to wait to possess the land of Canaan so that they would know that though at times a lot of time passes before God's promises are fulfilled, he is still faithful. He can be trusted to fulfill what he's promised in his own timing. Paul goes on to say, and after that, after they took possession of the land, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years, verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So he's just going through their their history here, which covers a period of time of thousands of years. I mean, thousands of years here have passed between that first promise and now. 
And again, Paul is mentioning all these things in their history to make the point, I know a lot of time has, has passed and God has made a lot of promises to our, to our forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to Joshua and later to King David and through our prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Zechariah and Micah and Malachi and others. He says, I know God's made a lot of promises to our people and through our people. And that a whole lot of time has passed since that first promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But Paul is making this point that just like God was faithful to his people after they spent 400 years in Egypt to deliver them out. He says, with uplifted arm, God led them out of Egypt. And just like he eventually led them out of the wilderness and into the land of promise and eventually allowed for his people to take possession of that promised land, Paul is saying here, we serve the same promise-keeping God today who keeps his promises on his own timing. Look at what he says in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, which man is he talking about? Well, look back at verse 22. He's talking about David. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, that's John the Baptist, by the way, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to tie Paul says in verse 23, this Messiah from the line of David, who John the Baptist talked about and prepared the way for and directed people to, he has come. God, in his perfect timing, has brought a Savior to Israel just as he promised. And Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And folks, listen, we serve the same God today. And this is a message we need to hear, right? Isn't it? Because we're living in the last days. And we have been for almost 2,000 years. Jesus has come the first time. He has accomplished our salvation. And he has promised that he's coming back. That he's returning for his church and he's coming to completely restore everything that was messed up at the fall. Everything in creation and everything in us as people. We're told by Paul in Romans chapter 8 that creation groans and we groan for that future day of redemption. But it's not yet happened, has it? But what's God's word to us? What we find in his word is his word to us. God's word for us in the New Testament is the same as his word for his people in the Old Testament who were waiting for his promised Messiah to come the first time. His message to us, church, is stay faithful. I am going to complete the work that I'm doing in you. I'm going to make things right again in my perfect timing. Therefore, stay faithful. Keep looking to me. Keep trusting in me. Keep following hard after me. I keep my promises in my perfect timing. Here's the second point Paul makes about our promise-keeping God in his sermon. Number two, God carries out his promises according to his mysterious ways. 
God carries out His promises in mysterious ways. Look at Acts 13, 26 through 31. It says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when he had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Man, Paul just, he he just lays out the gospel here, doesn't he? He just lays out the gospel right here. Here's the thing. People in Jesus' day, people in Paul's day, they were expecting a Messiah. They were looking for, they were anticipating the day when God's Messiah was going to come and restore order and bring salvation and make things right again. But in their minds, they were picturing the second coming of King David. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were longing for. Someone who was going to rise up in power and overthrow the world powers and establish a physical and political kingdom and would bring back the kind of kingdom that the Jews enjoyed in the days of David and in the days of Solomon. They, They thought that the promises God made and the kingdom that was coming was going to be this physical and powerful and political earthly kingdom. So when they thought about the Messiah, they thought he was going to rise up in this way. And when Jesus comes on the scene, at first they treat him like this. They wanted to make him king, right? They were looking for him to take charge in this way. But after a while, they began to lose hope that Jesus was the true Messiah because he didn't look like David. He was teaching his followers to turn the other cheek. To love your enemies. He was criticizing the religious leaders of the day and he was ministering to Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. But he was claiming to be the Messiah. Well, this just didn't seem right to many of the Jewish religious leaders. And so what do they do? Look at verse 27, 28. He says, because they did not recognize nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. It's a great passage here. Notice it says, they failed to recognize Jesus and they failed to understand the true message of their prophets. Listen, the way Jesus came... And what he came to do and the work that he accomplished can clearly be seen in the Old Testament when we read back, right? With New Testament eyes. It's not like the prophet said Jesus was going to be this way and then he came and it was a completely different way. No, Jesus was as the prophets described him to be. He accomplished the work they said he was going to accomplish. It's the Jewish religious leaders who completely misunderstood the message of the prophets. They failed to recognize Christ in the words they read each and every week. And as a result, listen to this, they fulfilled the words of their prophets by condemning 
Jesus. How incredible is that, folks? Notice this incredible and unique and mysterious work that God does here. The Jews thought the Messiah was going to come in a certain way, as described in the Old Testament. The scholars of his day, though, they misunderstood the Old Testament. They misunderstood their prophets, and they killed Jesus. And by killing Jesus, they fulfilled the words of their prophets. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? Paul says in verse 29, they had carried out all that was written of Jesus. John tells us in John 1.11, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not recognize him. They did not receive him. They rejected him. They despised him. They rejected him. They went out of their way to kill him. And Paul says, even though they viewed Jesus as not really deserving of death, they wanted to get rid of him. But none of them wanted Jesus' blood on their hands, did they? Until the Jews finally get desperate because they're fearful Jesus is not going to be crucified. And they said, his blood be on us. But at first, they didn't want that. They went through Pilate. Pilate didn't want Jesus' blood on his hands either, right? Which is why he washed his hands of the situation. And later on, when Judas tries to give the money back, nobody wants that blood money. Because they knew Jesus wasn't deserving of death, yet they sought to have him killed anyways. And though that's terrible, listen, God uses their misunderstanding of the prophets and God uses their, their hatred toward Jesus and their desire to want to be rid of Jesus to fulfill the words of the prophets who clearly taught, by Christ's wounds we are healed. It's an amazing work, folks. Now, though we've heard this story so many times about Jesus that many of us barely even bat an eye at the story anymore, I want you to understand that God bringing salvation to his people through the rejection and death of his son is radical. It's, it's unique, it's unexpected, it's mysterious. God allowing for his son to be rejected by his own people because they misunderstood the message of their own prophets to fulfill the message of their own prophets is unique. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Though Jesus was God, he did not cling to his equality with God. He did not cling to all the advantages that come with being God. But instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming one of us and a lowly one of us at that. He became a carpenter from the hick town of Nazareth. And he was obedient to the point of death, even a painful death on a shameful cross. And it was his own people who sent him there. That's radical. That's, that's unexpected. That's unlikely and unique. Yet that's how God did it. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Can I be honest with you? That's not the way I would have gone about it, probably, if I were in God's shoes. Thankfully, I'm not. I know y'all are thankful for that. I know I am. But if it were me, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to get my hands dirty. You know, I would have wanted to accomplish salvation from the heavenlies, from the throne room. And even if I did become a, a man, I would have, would have wanted to be an important and powerful man that accomplished salvation, that defeated sin and death and Satan with the waving of my royal scepter. That's the way I would have wanted to do it. But God didn't plan our salvation in that way at all. Christ did not accomplish our salvation in that way. He became a lowly servant. 
And he was crushed by God at the hands of his own people. He died the death we deserve to die and endured the wrath reserved for us so that we, through his sacrifice, could be saved. That's radical. That's unique. And that's the way God works to accomplish this great work and to fulfill his great plan. Now, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from the way God works here? Well, I'll tell you. We learn that we should trust God as at work even when we don't see it. In ways we do not expect it. And in ways we would not really have him work. He works in very unique and unlikely ways. God does. And oftentimes we we miss the work he's doing all around us because he's not working in the way we think he should or in the way we would like him to. Am I right? But scripture is clear that our God is always at work. He's always at work. Even when we can't see it. Even when we say there's no way God could be in the midst of this. He's in the mess. Restoring and redeeming. We see it all throughout his word and all throughout history. And we're to trust him regardless of what goes on around us. Because our God is always at work. We're to know and never forget that God is with us. He's with us in the mess, folks. He's with you in your mess. He is in control. He is good. And he is carrying out his promises in his perfect timing and according to his mysterious ways. Here's the third thing we learn about God's promises in this text. We learn that God fulfills his promises to us through Jesus Look at Acts 13, 29 again. When they had carried out all that was written of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Paul says here, after they killed Jesus, they, they took him down off the cross, they put him away, they laid him in a tomb. This is what they did. This is what the Jewish religious leaders did to Jesus. They killed him. They crucified the Lord of glory. But notice the great contrast in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. God overruled that decision, didn't he? Paul says, and they crucified Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. And Paul also says, not only did Jesus rise again, but for many days he appeared to people. He showed himself to be alive. Look at verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and who, are, who are now his witnesses to the people. The eyewitness accounts, they give strong evidence to Jesus' resurrection, and they validate who he claimed to be, and what he came to do. Paul appeals to this evidence multiple times. So do Christ's disciples. And notice in verse 32, Paul includes himself in the group of eyewitnesses. He says, and we, the eyewitnesses. Was Paul an eyewitness? Yeah, remember? He encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He too was, Christ appeared to him, and he too was commissioned directly by Jesus. And he says, we bring you the gospel. We bring you this good news. This is the good news right here. You ready? That what God promised to the fathers, verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul is saying here, all the promises that God has been making all throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3.15, all that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, 
to Moses, to David, and others. All the promises he made to his people through the prophets have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then Paul goes on to give several Old Testament examples about how Christ is the fulfillment of what was promised to their fathers. Look at it with me. Look at the end of verse 33 through verse 36. Paul says, As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There God's talking about his begotten son. Who's his begotten son? Jesus. This is written back in Psalm. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. He's going back to the Old Testament again. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So Paul's just going through the Old Testament. He's saying it's all about Jesus, like Jeff shared with us earlier. All of this, all of the Old Testament promises, they're fulfilled in Jesus. They're pointing to him. Psalm 2, you are my son. Jesus is God's son. In verse 34, Paul also reminds them that the covenant made to David, that his throne will be established forever and ever, didn't have its ultimate fulfillment in David, right? You know why? Because David died. He didn't continue to sit on his throne forever and ever. So where is that promise fulfilled? It's fulfilled in Jesus. He says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And he was laid with his fathers. And his body saw corruption. His body saw decay. But he whom God raised up, his body did not see corruption. His body did not see decay. So these promises made to David were not fulfilled in David. David died. His body saw decay. So these promises, they're not fulfilled in David. They're fulfilled in David's son, in David's Lord, Jesus. Though Jesus died, we know from Scripture, his body did not see decay like it says in the Old Testament, right? Because on the third day, what happened? Rose again. That's exactly right. He was raised up again to rule and to reign from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is God's forever king that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all that was promised to David. He is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made all throughout his word. And Paul's point here in referencing these things is to show them this. And I want you to get this. I want you to highlight this. If you fail to see Jesus all throughout the scriptures, and that he is the fulfillment of all of these promises, you're not going to truly be able to make sense of what God has said all throughout his word. If you miss Jesus, same goes for us. If you try and read and understand and apply God's word without being centered upon Jesus, you're going to miss the point. You're going to miss it completely. Paul is living proof of this, is he not? He tried, he knew the scriptures, and he ended up persecuting the God he thought he was serving because he left Jesus out. He studied God's word. He tried to apply God's word without Jesus. And he ended up being a legalistic, self-righteous enemy of God. That's what happens when you leave Jesus out of it. 
So to truly understand God's word, to rightly apply God's word, you have to be centered upon Jesus. You have to understand that God fulfills his promises to us through him. Here's the last point. When it comes to God's promises, not only are they fulfilled in his time, in mysterious ways, through Jesus, but we also learn from Paul here that God offers his promises to those who trust in Christ. Look at verse 38. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Notice the word therefore in verse 38. Paul is summing up his sermon here. This is the the point of the matter. This is the heart of the matter. He's saying, in light of all that I've said to you, this is how you're to respond. He's giving his invitation. He says, let it be known that through Jesus, through his person and work, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul has laid out what Christ has done, and now he is addressing their sinfulness and their need of what Christ has done. Notice twice in verse 39, Paul says, by him, through Jesus, you can be freed. Freed from what? What do they need to be freed from? Verse 38, their sin, very good. Their sin, he says, through Jesus, you can be freed from everything you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And boy, Saul knew those words, didn't he? He did. See, again, they were trying to apply God's word apart from Jesus. They were trying to live up to God's perfect standard on their own, but they could not do it. They remained slaves to sin. But Paul comes in and he gives them great news. He says, you are slaves to sin, but through Jesus, you can be set free from your sin and made right with God. How? By faith in Christ alone. Paul says, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed. It's in Jesus. You got to believe in Jesus. You got to put your trust in him. You got to see your need. You got you to see your need for what he's done for you. You got to forsake your ways. You got to die to going at life on your own. You got to give your life up and over to Jesus. You got to trust in him alone for salvation. And Paul says, and God says through Paul, you will be freed if you do that. Have you been freed from sin? Have you given your life up and over to Jesus? Have you turned from going at life on your own? Have you waved the white flag of surrender? Turned your allegiance from yourself to the Savior? You want to lay hold of these promises we've been talking about this morning? You want to be freed from sin? You want to be delivered? You want to be forgiven? You want to be made right with God? You want to become a child of His forever and ever you have to trust in jesus if you've never made that decision i pray you would before we leave here today let's pray